Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in a couple of weeks, series 12 of this podcast will be kicking off. In the meantime, after receiving some brilliant feedback from republishing the Daniel Pink episode in March, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing 12 of my favourite episodes since I launched Future Work Life. And today, you'll hear my conversation with Christopher Lockhead from, tw- from February 2022. Christopher, it's been about 15 months since we spoke on my very first podcast. You're the only guest to return so far, so thanks again for joining me. Well, it is absolutely my pleasure. I'm come back anytime you want me to. <laughs> so I'm interested in that time, the last 15 months, what's the single most important insight that you've discovered? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge one. Um, and it's one hiding in plain sight. And the fact that it's not on the cover of every major publication in the world all the time uh, boggles my mind. But the the insight simply stated is uh, the native digitals have already taken over. And most people aren't even aware of what a native digital is. How are you defining a native digital? And what would you call someone who doesn't fall into that category? So the age line tends to be roughly around 35-ish. But the real definition of a native digital is someone who came of age with mobile phones and the cloud. And, and this is the part no one uh, understands sort of how profound this is because native digitals are the first of a new category of human being. And native analogs are literally the last of a dying breed. And here's the distinction. If your native digital, your primary world is digital, And the analog world is your secondary world. And if your native analog, 35 approximately or older, uh, your primary experience of life is an analog one, uh, I'm a native analog, and uh, I have a very rich digital life. I I spend a lot of my work life in the digital world. As a matter of fact, it's my primary uh, place of work is is the digital world. Um, And so I'm, I'm a native analog who... It's been in the tech industry for over 35 years. I'm very comfortable with it. I grew up in it. I've been working in Silicon Valley for the bulk of my professional life. And um, I am a native analog because I did not come of age with it. And um, actually, I could I could tell you the story of when I had the aha, if you like. Mm, please. So I had a buddy of mine actually visiting from the UK named Paul, married to a, spe- a spectacular gal named Bex, and I've known them for eons. And they now have a couple of kids and uh, they came to visit me and my wife, Carrie. I live in Santa Cruz, California, which is about uh, an hour and a half from San Francisco on the ocean. So they came to have a, spend a few days and have a great time. And the kids were, you know, at the time sort of 14 and 16 ish, you know, right around that super pain in the assy kind of age. <laughs> and uh, my wife, being the extraordinary person that she is, she she sets up this magical beach dinner where we take some wood out to the beach and we set up a fire and we have some weenies and we're going to make hot dogs and and we're going to make s'mores for dessert and we're going to watch the sunset and the whole thing, right? So we're doing all this. It's wonderful. We're having a great old time. And um, guess what the kids are doing? They're on, on their phones. They're on their phones. So uh, I'm there unwanted 
um, a crazy uncle. I'm the crazy uncle to many. And so I start giving them a bit of a about it, you know, say, hey, um, kids, there's this thing right in front of you going flop, flop, flop. Uh, they don't have that in London. It's it's called the Pacific Ocean. And I say, hey, kids, look over there. There's this orangey, pinky, reddy thing in the sky. It's looking pretty awesome right now. It's called the sunset. You know, and each time they'll look up from their phones for two seconds. They'll take a picture. They'll take a, sh a short video. And then the two of them disappear into their phones. And so we go on. The evening happens. And that's when I had the aha. I woke up the next morning and I realized if your native analog, and again, these are generalizations, but they're, they're grounded in reality. If your native analog, the experience you're having is the sunset, is the beach, is the barbecued hot dogs and, and, and the being with your friends and, and having a wonderful conversation and the like. Um, if your native digital, the sunset is interrupting your real life. And so the question becomes, what's real? The, um, the sunset and the beach experience with your friends or the video of the sunset? And the answer to that question is all dependent on whether or not you're native analog or a native digital. And once I had that aha, um, everything became clear to me about sort of the behavior of native digitals uh, and everything about my behavior as it relates to native digitals also became very clear to me. Um, and so sort of that's big aha number one. I don't have the data for Europe or the UK in front of me, but I do know in the United States now there are more native digitals than native analogs. So if you say native analogs are uh, Gen X uh, and the baby boomers and native digitals are millennials and Gen Z, in the U.S. there's about 140 million native digitals and there's roughly 138 and change native analogs. So that's kind of point A. Point B, in the U.S., uh, you are more likely to be working in the corporate world, be working for a millennial than anyone else. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal has identified because of the way native analogs think about um, primarily uh, inheritance and gifting. There's a new paradigm that says, well, I'm not going to wait till I die to give my kids this money. I'm going to support them while I'm alive and, 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 and see them go to school or go to help them with their first car or their first house or their wedding or whatever it is, right? And so this idea of we give them at least part of uh, their inheritance while we're still around. Well, the Wall Street Journal has identified this as the largest wealth transfer in history. And so the big aha is um, the native digital way of living has already taken over. And most native analogs are completely unaware of it. What you've described or the way you described it for native analogs sounds like this sort of dystopic reality, doesn't it? That everything's lived through screens. And I think when we're thinking about trends in tech, for example, clearly last year, the metaverse became one of the hottest topics. And I think if you asked native digitals, they'd say that it already exists. You know, that exists within 
video games exists within other platforms that they use, you know, TikTok, you know, these other realities which they're, they're living in. I'm just interested how businesses should be thinking about this new category of human being. You know, what should marketers be doing to be able to make sure that we're talking to them? Or are actually, given what you've just said about most people being managed by millennials, are actually, is, is it the native digitals who are in control of marketing departments now already? In the tech world, they are increasingly because, and this is an oversimplification, of course, but generally in tech, uh, executives are younger than they are in many other industries. Um, You know, I was a chief marketing officer at 28 years old, and that was a little unusual back then. It's less unusual today. Um, And so we are seeing more uh, native digitals in very senior roles. in tech and outside of tech. So there's a very good chance if you're in the B2B world, um, you have at least a 50-50 chance of your buyer, your economic buyer, that is to say the person who signs the contract, um, you have a a better than 50-50 chance now in tech that that person is a native digital. Hmm. Almost Uh, everybody you're hiring. The other thing that's interesting is uh, the senior executives, the CEOs in particular, tend to be native analogs. Mm. And they're hiring. Most companies are now hiring more native digitals than they are native analogs. And part of the reason for the great resignation, in our opinion, is that native analogs don't understand that um, native digitals don't want to work in an analog world. And you, if you start to listen to their language, Ollie, you can hear it. So I'll give you a simple example. Back to work. We got to go back Mm. to work, right? Dealing with coronavirus, all that. When are we going back to work? There's work from home and back to work. We got to go back to work. Well, if you're a native analog, work is an analog place. If you're a native digital, work is a digital space. And if you look at the survey data amongst native digitals, um, the vast majority of them will quit if forced uh, to go to that place. And if you talk to recruiters and headhunters, they'll tell you that uh, work from anywhere is the new signing bonus. And if you look at what's happened with major, even major digital companies, companies like Google and Netflix and Apple, who are uh, trying to mandate their employees back Uh, in every case they've had to back off forcing them to come back to work because they were going to lose major percentages of their employees because the employees were saying, Oh yeah, fuck you. What are you talking about? We have to go to a dumb office. Mm. The other thing that's, you know, that one's very obvious. Um, The other thing that's less obvious uh, I'll share with you another quick story. Um, a couple weeks ago, there's a great, uh, dumpling restaurant here in Santa Cruz. And so me and my wife and some friends, we all went out and we had, uh, fresh dumplings and our favorite local IPA. And so we had a wonderful evening together. And after that, um, dinner, we decided to go for a little bit of a walk. And there's a place in downtown Santa Cruz that is famous for its hot chocolate, gourmet, super ding dong, hot chocolate. And it's been there forever. So we show up and um, there's a menu right out front of it. 
And this gal comes to greet us. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Uh, you know, we'd like to, she says, would you like to be seated? And we say, no, no, we'd just like to order some hot chocolate to go, please. Oh, she says, okay, fine. Um, there's a QR code and you can order it online. And we say, but we're standing right here. And she says, yeah, we, we only do uh, to-go orders online now. And so here you have a what heretofore has been a 100% native analog experience that now has a native digital front end. And if you can't work a smartphone, you can't buy hot chocolate. Mm. I mean, I was going to ask you how you feel about that, but perhaps the feeling or perhaps the question is, does it matter how you feel about that? Because that's the new reality. You nailed it. I mean, people sometimes get angry at me and my category pirate uh, partners about talking about this. Oh, this is ageism. All the stuff. And it's like, no, no, it's not any of that. We're just reporting the news. Yeah. And a lot of native analogs get upset and you can get as upset as you want. The the New York Times just wrote an extraordinary story about what major league sports um, uh, organizations are doing to attract native digitals. And in that story, they said, and I'm paraphrasing, I can send you the link if, if, if it matters. In that story, they said um, that the native digitals live so much in a digital world that if native analog parents, teachers, friends, uh, church leaders, coaches, etc., don't meet them in their world, they won't have a relationship with them because that's where they live. And any adult who knows about having a relationship with a child you have to meet the child where they are. It is unusual. It happens, but it is unusual for the child to come to you. And so the New York Times now reporting on the simple fact that you can't have a meaningful relationship with your kids unless you learn to be in the digital world with them. And we've been doing a lot of writing about this. And I got an extraordinary note from a mother uh, who read our first kind of major piece on this. Um, and uh, she said when she was reading it, she cried because it explained her relationship with her kids. Mm. And so the big aha is native digitals have a 180 degree different experience of life from native analogs. And native analogs have to build the bridges because the native digital digitals are too busy building digital worlds to care about bridges to the native analogs i'm interested in another recent phenomenon i guess you might call it the idea of you got to hustle to make it i think you might call them hustle porn stars what's what's going on there well um <laughs> you know this is one of my favorite topics <laughs> um I think the hustle porn stars, people like um, Grant Cardone and uh, John Lee Dumas and, of course, uh, um, Gary VD himself. Gary VD is a digital disease um, that many catch. Um, these people have convinced the whole world that success in the digital world 
is about screaming, look at me, look at me, look at me. They've perpetuated this thing we call the me disease. Mm -hmm. As though people give a shit about what you had for breakfast on, uh, on um, Instagram. People care about themselves. They don't care about you. So, so first of all, this sort of perpetuating of stupidities, uh, saying stuff like, you don't even have to be a creator. Just document everything you do. As if anybody gives a fuck like we're all watching the Truman Show. It's asinine. And then this business about hustle itself. Um, these idiots have said things like hustle is the most important word in the English language. These idiots sell T-shirts that say hustle 365, you know, times seven uh, and things along those lines. Grant Cardone during the recession caused by COVID was tweeting about how God built heaven and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. And what are you doing? Uh, It's asinine to tell people to hustle. If you hustle your entire career, you're going to wake up at 50 years old and you're going to be overweight. You're going to look like shit and you're going to feel like shit and your spouse will divorce you and your children will not recognize you. Uh, People like these idiots have said things like, oh, now you ever died from working too hard. Really? In Japan, they have a word for it. It's called karoshi. It, co- it means death by work. And here's the other big aha. Those of us who want to have legendary careers, who want to build legendary businesses, do that in the context of a legendary life design, right? So if you step, if you step all the way back, and we say, okay, what is Ollie's definition of a legendary life for Ollie? And there's a Mrs. Ollie, right? There is. And when you're lucky enough to have a partner, you get to co-create your life, and you even get to co-create some people if you like. And so life is an act of creation, and, and when done extraordinarily, it's an act of co-creation with people that you love. And in that context, work is part of that life design. And so um, I'm somebody who's worked very hard in his life. Uh, I overworked. Uh, I know of what I speak because, in part, it cost me a marriage. I used to travel two to 400,000 miles a year on a plane. And, um, and so this bullshit about hustle is ridiculous. The other part of it is um, hustle at what? There's a lot of people who work hard and get nowhere. Have you ever seen a hamster in a wheel? They hustle. And so there's working hard, of course, and there's working smart. And people who work smart, yes, they work hard. And oh, by the way, if you're an entrepreneur or you're somebody who says you want to have a legendary career and you don't get that hard work is going to be part of it, you're a fucking moron, right? Duh. It's an obvious. Of course, you got to have to put in some time. But you should love that time for the most part. And it should be highly creative time, high, you know, learning time. Um, and the most legendary people become known for a niche or a category they own. And the stupidest thing of all about hustle is it perpetuates the myth that you and I make ourselves successful. Ollie doesn't make Ollie successful and I don't make me successful. Uh, you can see I got a bunch of guitars hanging around. I love guitars. 
and I make a little bit of a noise on a guitar. Not much, a little bit of a noise. And I can belt out a song every once in a while. So there's me, and there's Bruce Springsteen. And you know what the difference between me and Bruce Springsteen is? Fans. And so the big fallacy of the hustle porn stars, of the me disease, of the idiocy of the vast majority of influencers, not all of them, by the way, but many of them, is the world cares about me, 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 and how I'm going to be successful is I'm going to expose everything about me digitally, and I'm, that's going to work. And the truth is people care about themselves. They only care about us if we share things with them that make a difference for them. And so we do not make ourselves successful. Other people do. Uh, that's why categories make brands. Right, Because categories are about people, their problems and opportunities. Brands are about us. It's why personal branding is another source of intergalactic bullshit, right? Um, And so the hustle porn stars, in my opinion, have done more damage to young entrepreneurs in the last 10 or so years than any other group because they have perpetuated all of these insanities that it's about me. It's about sharing bullshit online. It's about staring into your phone going, Hey guys, (laughs) here's the motivational tip for the day. There's nobody legendary that does that shit. Not a one. Let's contrast that with the people who do create value. So I'm, I'm interested. I know you've got two writing partners now and and there's loads we can talk about with this, but I'm interested in the process that you go through to identify those subjects which matter to people and then double down on them. Because for me, that's the opposite of the idea that you just create something because it puts you in the spotlight. You're you're writing about issues or questions which people are really interested in. So what's what's your process? I think at a high level, we can go as detailed level as you like, Ollie. But at a high level, it's really simple. Um, On one dimension, what is it you have to offer that's going to make a giant difference to others? And another sort of uh, lens on that same idea is what problem do you solve? And why does that problem matter? And you could state it in the positive, if you like, which is what opportunity do you represent and why does that opportunity matter? And so if you're working on a problem slash opportunity that makes a big difference, that is different, that is to say the whole world hasn't figured it out yet, then you really have something. You know, so I know you're talking a lot lately about writing and your own writing and so forth and so on. Here's a simple one for business writers. If it can appear in ink or fast company, don't write it. (laughs) Because if you look at ink, fast company, Forbes, Fortune, the vast majority of what you could probably think of as tier two business publications, I'll I'll say it in in, in a way that maybe will be more fun. um, They're all shite now. And here's (laughs) the evidence that they're shite. Take an ink uh, post. Take the masthead off of it and put a a Forbes logo on top of it or a Fortune logo on top of it. 
no one could tell the difference. Mm. Secondarily, the vast majority of what we read on those sites today is not written by anybody that works for those companies. They're by they're done by contributors, many of whom are not paid. And now, Forbes, I don't know what they call it. They have some stupid name for it to make it sound prestigious. They want to charge you to write for them. And then they turn around and charge the reader to read, to read this absolute intergalactic babble um, that they post because someone pays them to. And so um, those all those publications are dying because I think the average reader understands that they're, what they're reading is, is, a, is absolute shite. And, um, and so you have, to, you have to have the courage to write something different. We, nobody needs to write the article, you know, 10 new ways to improve your, nah, right? We don't need to write that one again. It's advice of yours that I've followed, or at least I, I try to. Um, I think people have the confidence issue sometimes. To, to really be different is challenging for people. And also I think, and this is an experience I've had, I talk a lot about people trying to find their niche um, and trying to match up the skills that they have with problems that, um, you know, that their customers might have in a business context, or, um, you know, if you're writing that their readers might be interested in. But I think sometimes actually identifying that can be quite difficult for, for people when their brain doesn't work in the, in the way that yours does. I'm, I'm just wondering whether there is any practical advice that people can do to try and give themselves the confidence to take that leap and actually write something which their conscious is very different from, from what people might expect to read. Great question. So if you're not writing anything different, why are you writing it in the first place? You're going to ask people to donate part of their life to your ideas. And if all you're going to do is re-swizzle a, a bunch of Dale Carnegie quotes and act like you're some personal marketing, branding guru moron, um, the world doesn't need another one of those. Uh, go, on to, go on Instagram and type in personal branding and look at the list of maniacs who come up. So we don't need any of that stupid shit. We don't need one more stupid article on pick the topic. Some, you know. So if you're going to ask people to invest their life in your work, why would you write things that have been written before? Now, look, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, we, nobody starts off original. Right? The Beatles start off playing cover music, as does every band. But, and this is a very important but, there is a sum total of zero cover bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And yet most people in business are regurgitating garbage. We just wrote a big piece on content-free marketing. Here's a test you can do. When was the last time you consumed a corporate piece of content, whether it was from an individual, an executive, or just a company, blog, podcast, video, fill in the blank? And you said, wow, that was fucking legendary. I'm glad I did that. 
The answer is pretty much never. And yet that's what our industry, being the entrepreneurial, marketing, digital world that you and I live in, creates, is 100% content-free content. And it's all about, oh, we got to write some stuff for, for the top of the funnel. Nah. Right? It's all that. It's going to be garbage. Nobody's going to want to consume it. And it's not going to be a surprise when it doesn't do what you want it to do because it's content-free and meaningless. And so when you change your headset from content marketing to education, to teaching, when you change your mindset from being a uh, mercenary who's trying to make money, and look, I'm a big fan of making money, um, to a missionary who's trying to make a difference and make money, Mm. it's a very, very big change in perspective. And people can tell. If I serve you dog shit with whipped cream on top of it, you're still going to know it's dog shit. And when people consume something that's great, that's different, that's engaging, that's provocative, that's well-researched, that has some primary research in it, um, that presents a different perspective, um, that stretches our thinking, we love that. People love to learn. You know, Yuval Harari, everybody wants to read everything the guy writes. Why? Because the guy writes awesome, fucking amazing shit that hasn't been quite put that way before. Mm. And so we can all be like him in our, in our niche if, we're, if we have the courage to do that. And, you know, I, I sort of turn it to you personally. Do you really want to be somebody who just spews out stupidities? You really want to be another Gary VD? Not me. <laughs> no, not me, VD. So it took me a while with writing. Actually, it's, I tell you what, when I think that first, when I first started writing, nobody read it at all. And it was easy to write whatever I want, wanted. And I think the, um, the, the journey I've had, if you can call it that, is as people started reading it and there's an expectation to deliver something, you start thinking, oh, God, I've got to write something profound here to be interesting and actually i think i that's where i think i got it wrong i think in the in the effort to be profound i actually became more mundane in the way that i was thinking um but it's constantly reminding yourself of just to say what you think you know that's i think that's probably the my what i've learned is don't be afraid to say what you think so i wrestle often with the stuff i've written and think should i put it like that is that going to offend some people well do you know what fuck it, I'll write it as I wish. Because, you know, I think you, you can certainly tell. When I look back on the things I've written, and I can tell when I was bullshitting myself versus when I was just laying it all out there. And you're, you're completely right. When I'm laying it all out there, it's far better work. That's absolutely right. And the other thing I'd say for folks is um, don't listen to anybody. Most people regurgitate. Here, what passes for thinking today is actually the mental retweeting of something we heard that we like the sound of. So most people don't think today. And thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And most people don't think, never mind think, about the context in which they're thinking. So I'll give you a simple example. So you mentioned Cole and Eddie, my partners. We began by writing a book. And we were more than a year into writing a book. 
And we sort of had sort of a couple of ahas. One was, um, particularly myself, you know, I'm, 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 I'm like ADHD. I want it now. And I, I'm like a kid when we write something great, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning. I, I can't wait nine months or a year, year and a half to share this with the world this is driving me nuts. Right. We did some cool research or whatever it is. Right. So there's that element of it. And then the other element of it for us was we realized that while we absolutely did want to write, um, a book, we had a lot more to say than just a book. So we flipped in the um, late fall of 2020 from writing a book to launching a newsletter that we actually call a mini book newsletter um, in January of 2021. Well, here's what everybody said. Oh, everybody's doing a Substack newsletter. It's too late. That, that was one. Another one we heard is uh, I've never been celebrated for my brevity. And um, we wanted to have meaningful, nuanced, in-depth conversation. Uh, and that's what I do on my podcast. That's what we do in Category Pirates. So we started off writing a newsletter that was probably about three to 5,000 words. And now we probably average six to eight. We just dropped one that was 11,000 words. And we do it every week. So here's the other one we heard. Nobody reads long form content. They, they like TikTok videos. That's what people like. Can you make that a TikTok video? And then the other thing they told us is nobody pays for content, especially business content. There's so much free content. Nobody pays for business content. Okay, so here we are on the year anniversary of the launch of Category Pirates. And we are the number four paid business newsletter on Substack, which is the number one platform in the world for newsletters. And so everything that everybody said to us was completely wrong. And so my point is, if you have something powerful to say, if you have something differentiated to say, if you bring a different point of view to the world, what there is to do is be all in on that point of view and write with courage about that point of view. We write shit no one else will say. We destroyed the branding industry with a piece called The Big Brand Lie. Destroyed them with data. Don't give a fuck. Lots of hate mail in the inbox, right? Don't care. So people admire different. They admire unique point of view. They admire primary research that brings new thinking to the light, light. They admire thinking about thinking, which invites them. But that's the other thing in our work, Ollie. We don't say we have all the answers to everything. Far from it. But what we do say is, here's a lens. Go play with this lens. Anyway, my point is, if you want to write all, you know, you want to develop a daily writing habit, you want to become known as a writer, who's a person whose thinking is worthy of engaging with and thinking, then it takes the courage to stand up and do that. And why wouldn't you? Nobody wants to read your version of how to win friends and influence people. Nobody wants to read that. It's done. It's been done. No cover bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hmm. So on that point, I'm, I am writing a book, as you know, and one of the phrases I've wrestled with 
over time and i'm interested to get your take on it is the the idea of work-life balance so so we we talked earlier about the, the the damaging suggestion that you should be hustling so maybe the automatic assumption is you should have more work-life balance is that is that your view christopher you're, you're, what are you going to just hit all my favorites today <laughs> <laughs> I'll just tear I'm I'm teeing you off. Here's a, here's an alley oop. So on all these things, listen to the words. Work, life, balance. So we use this phrase called languaging as a way to um underscore a particular kind of usage of words. And so languaging is the use of language to change uh, thinking or to open people up to new thinking. So I have tried to be, for the vast majority, Ollie, of my adult life, a student of languaging. I try to listen to the words. And um, people say, oh, it doesn't really matter what the words mean. No, no, it it fucking does because languaging creates thinking and thinking creates action. And a demarcation point in language creates a demarcation point in thinking, which creates a demarcation point in language. So if you want to move the world, you have to be a student of languaging because it's what creates thinking, which ultimately creates outcomes and results. So let me get back to your question. Work-life balance. Here's where I start. I reject the premise of the question because the question sets up, in my opinion, an invalid context. That is to say, well, I have my work and I have my life. Those two things are separate and I have to find some balance between them. That, that, that in my opinion, is a, is a paradigm for pain. No, I have my life and I have multiple use cases of myself, right? I'm a very committed uncle. I'm a deeply committed uh, pet owner. I feel like Noah sometimes uh, with all of the fucking critters we have. I'm deeply, deeply committed to uh, being a good citizen. I'm deeply committed to trying to make a difference for other people. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm, cr- I'm a creative person. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a marketing guy. I'm also a scuba diver and a surfer and a boxer, right? And so, and I'm not trying to balance any of that shit, right? There's my life. And the real question is, how do you want to invest your life? And then invest invest it appropriately for you. And for me, I don't care that it's the weekend. I don't care what, sometimes I'm working. Sometimes I'm hanging out with my family. Sometimes I'm on a long bike ride. Uh, right, right now in America, it's uh, football season, and uh, you can find me on Saturdays consuming a tremendous amount of beer uh, and and uh, bad for your food with a bunch of buddies yelling at the TV. Um, and I work with entrepreneurs and legendary marketers and incredible venture capitalists. And so, listen, we are all a lot of things. You are a lot of things. You're not balancing those things. You're trying to build a 360-degree life. And further, work-life balance creates a premise that 
work is this thing we need to manage down so we can have more time for our life? Well, the data suggests that work is a massive part of where we as human beings achieve our uh, self-actualization. And so to devalue work as just earning a paycheck, it's not just earning a paycheck. It's part of how we contribute. It's part of how we uh, human beings are pack animals. So we like to be on teams. We like to co-create. And we like to do something of value that is valued. Part of why we like making money, it's an, it's an, yes, we can go buy things with that money, of course. But the other part of it is it's an acknowledgement of our value. And work can be pure bliss. When I'm working with Eddie and Cole on the next category, Pirates, I don't give a shit how much time I spend on it. I really don't. I come in this studio right here with Bean and I sit down. And, uh, you know, sometimes I have a beer and sometimes I invite my friend Mary Jane. Um, but regardless of what, how I'm doing it, I put on my headphones, I listen to music, and I disappear in flow with my collaborators and my own brain. And mm. if it takes me half an hour, great. And if I'm in here for six straight hours, my wife doesn't bug me. Because when, when a legendary band goes in the studio, you know, uh, we were talking beforehand. I, I know the guy who was the coach of Metallica. And when Metallica goes into the studio, they go into the studio. And if they're done at 2 a.m., they're done at 2 a.m. And so uh, I reject the premise. And I think it's actually a very damaging premise for people. We have one life. The objective is to be a 360-degree person. The people most of us admire the most are legendary 360-degree people who are great parents, who are great members of the community, who do great work, make a great contribution. Uh, some of them make a lot of money. Some of them don't. Whatever the case may be. Uh, but the whole premise, I think, is bullshit. The real question is, how do I design a legendary life? And what use cases of me do I find the most powerful and the most interesting? And one of those use cases is work. Completely agree. Christopher, always, always a pleasure to chat. I'm just wondering, is there anything else you want to share with us that you, you know, you want to point us in the direction of before we wrap up today? Well, first, um, you just asked the most powerful question probably ever. And it's one I learned very early in my career. And it is highly unusual for me to end any conversation with anybody about anything without saying, is there anything else? It's an incredibly powerful sales question when we're meeting with potential customers or prospects. Um, and here, I'll tell you a story about, is there anything else? So when my grandmother was in the hospital dying, she had broken her hip and things were not going well. And, you know, we knew things were very iffy. We had a hard time getting a hold of the doctor who was going to do the um, hip operation. I was there with my uncle. And um, we were getting pretty frustrated because we kept asking to talk to the doctor and no doctor. We'd been there for, you know, hours. You know what hospitals can be like, right? 
So finally, with my uncle, I'm I'm not known uh, for being uh, non-assertive. Let me put it that way. So I take my uncle Jim, walk up to this nursing station. And I say, listen, we need to talk to Dr. Ding Dong, and we need to talk to him now. Well, you know, I don't care. We've been waiting for six hours, eight hours, whatever it was at the time. Um, the surgery is soon. She's not having the surgery until we get to talk to him. So I put my foot down and they hum and they ha. Finally, Dr. Ding Dong shows up. He's the bedside manner of a fucking Gestapo. Anyway, so he's telling us and he's barely paying attention. He's treating us like shit, as, as some people in that profession can. And we're asking him to describe the surgery and how long it's going to take and what he's going to do and this and that and the other and, and so forth and so on. And uh, we get to the end of the conversation. My uncle's standing right next to me. And I say to him, doctor, is there anything else? And with his terrible bedside manner, he says, yes. There's a 50% chance she'll die on the operating table. And it was as though he had punched my uncle, her son, in the gut. So then I said, okay, well, tell us about that. And so um, is there anything else is the most powerful question certainly to end any conversation with, and it might be the most powerful question, period. Um, so, yes, there is. So other than talking about the question, is there anything else? Yes, there, there is something else. What I'd leave you with, Ollie, first of all, I want to thank you for doing the legendary work you're doing. Podcasts are the only medium for authentic dialogue. There is no other medium other than sitting down with somebody yourself, which, of course, is not a medium, where real, authentic dialogue, conversation in an unedited way can happen. If you start listening, I don't know if they use this expression in the UK. They use it here all the time. There'll be some interviewer gal or guy will have some incredible guest on they'll be talking about some unbelievable thing they'll only be in it for three minutes because that's all you get on radio and tv and then they'll use this phrase well jim we're gonna have to leave it there on a podcast you don't have to leave it there right there is no time constraint and we are at a point certainly in america and i think in much of the world where the greatest um risk to our future is our inability to have real dialogue with each other. And then the last, last thing I'll leave you with is if you think about the last two years or so and the amount of radical exponential change that has happened, you hear this idiocy in business and in marketing. Oh, if you don't like change, you don't like change. People love change. We now have telemedicine overnight, poof. We now had teleeducation overnight, Zoom school overnight, poof. The development of the vaccines themselves, extraordinary. Yes, there had been decades and decades of work to get us there. I'm not stupid about any of those things. But the reality is some of the smartest people on planet Earth got together using information technology and were able to create that vaccine standing on those decades of research and save literally millions and millions and millions of lives and on and on and on all the changes that we all understand and are experiencing 
And so here's the aha. We right now are at the time of the most accelerated uh, new category and new innovation, new category development and new innovation than ever before in the history of the world right now. And the innovation that's going to be created in the next 20 years will be more than the last 100 years combined by a lot. And so I think what that means to entrepreneurs, to creators, to marketers of any kind is the receptivity to new and different has never been higher than it is right now. The receptivity to the exponential as distinct from the incremental has never been higher than it is right now. And so for those of us who want to move the world forward in a positive way by creating new companies, new categories, new products, new services, now's the time. And if you're that kind of person, I would deeply, deeply encourage you to get super forward on your skis and go for it because the future needs you. Christopher, thanks again for your time. Chat again soon. My pleasure. Thank you, brother.